This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today on Dreamland, we have we have a very interesting guest, indeed. I have read his book, Out of Time, and uh, this is going to be one of the best shows about abduction I think that we've ever done. I really do. Steve Aspen has been a businessman most of his life. He's now, I hope, pleasantly retired, and uh, but not retired from this because this is the close encounter and abduction experiences are not something you retire from. In fact, I'm going to ask him later what he thinks does happen to us when we die, because I'm wondering about that myself. Uh, I wouldn't call either of us an out-and-out codger, but we're definitely older guys, so we want to know. Welcome to Dreamland, Steve. It's really a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Whitley. It's great to be here and finally uh, finally get together with you. Yeah, and a wonderful, articulate book out of time the intergenerational abduction program explored Mm -hmm. and you know we go deep into a lot of subjects in this show but we go real deep into abduction because this is our lives the lives of many of the people who watch and listen and you know in fact if you look at the numbers my numbers are fairly small in 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 uh in comparison to some shows lex friedman for example a general science show with a sort of edge to it gets hundreds of thousands of viewers or people who who do the do straight ufo get hundreds of thousands of viewers in a good week i might get sixty thousand viewers or and listeners and the reason is this most people figure Oh, abductions, that'll never happen to me. I don't need to know about that. I'm curious about the UFOs. I'm curious about the edge of science. I'm not curious about that. Or maybe there's something deeper. If I get interested in it, will it come to me? Will I attract it? How do you think it happened to come into your life? And when did it first start? <clears throat> I think it's um, when I was about nine years old, um, when these nighttime incidents had been already happening to me uh, every few weeks for many, many years, I asked one of the abductors because you can ask them and they communicate telepathically straight into your mind, and you always know which one of them is talking to you because it's a really distinctive, each one of them has a a distinctive voice. And I asked them, why me? Why are you doing this to me? Why am I going through this? What's what, what is it about me that gets me in this situation? And he said, Oh, it's because of your mother and your grandmother and your great grandmother. That's the line. And you're, and you're next in the line. That's why you're here. And I had no idea of what to make of this information for next 35 years. I didn't um, think this phenomenon was anything to do with uh, flying saucers or with alien life forms or with life outside the planet. I had absolutely no concept that it was anything to do with that. I just thought it was something, um, 
to do with the fairy world, to do with uh, the folk tales, to do with um, these kind of uh, family origin things, this weird stuff, you know. So the, you had you had the occult and fairy folk and so forth in your family life before? Yeah, in a small way. My mother was um, became later, not when I was nine years old, but much later in her life, she became a spiritual healer, but she was always interested in... Um, and spiritualism and she belonged to the spiritual association of great Britain, spiritualist association of great britain which is based in london and she'd already always read books on the subject and she was you know fairly steeped in it um my father on the other hand has absolutely no interest in that side of life at all um but my mother did and my grandmother kind of did but she was <clears throat> my grandmother my maternal grandmother was um a simple woman, really. She was from a Yorkshire farming background, and she had only education up to age 14 when she left school, and she had no higher education, and she very rarely read stuff, and she had lived a really kind of simple life. Um, this was not the age when mass communications of other than the radio existed. Yes. So you had very little exposure to anything outside your local community. So um, she also believed in fairies and believed in the natural world but she didn't make a great deal of it she just had it she just accepted it as part of um the did folk. she ever tell you about anything she might have witnessed or experienced <clears throat> um i asked her after, for, shortly following this thing this interaction i had with these abductors i asked her a, a few months later um, out the, uh, it's very difficult to start a conversation like this with your grandmother, but yeah, I just said, what, what about, I, you know, I kind of frame, I can't even remember the, the framework I put on it, but yeah. I just asked this, these things happen to me at night and I feel paralyzed and these, these things are around me, these people. And she said, Oh, they're the pixies, Steve. Uh, that Stevie, they're just the pixies. Don't worry. They'll, um, uh, they'll always bring you back and they won't harm you. And that was it. That was her. Uh, that's a you know a paradigm for this uh, ex experience that was happening to her. I think probably <clears throat> she thought that um, it happened to everybody or a lot of people, and all you needed to do was wait until a child asked you about it, and ex then explain to the child that it was basically okay. You know, they wouldn't harm you, or they wouldn't. Um, they all always return you home because she thought they were they they took her away and brought her back again. You know, okay. So that, that was one combat. That was that one single conversation I had with her, and she died the following year. And I didn't see her very often because we lived a couple of hundred miles away, which in those days uh, was you know, well, a distance to travel. We're going to take a <coughs> break for free Dreamlanders, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Steve why he asked his grandmother that question. And I think we're gonna get a very interesting answer. We'll be right back. We're talking to Steve Aspen, his new book, Out of Time. It goes way beyond its the normal abduction description and, and goes deeply into the meaning and experience of this in, in ways that I don't see many books doing. 
Its subtitle is The Intergenerational Abduction Program Explored. And before we left the air, we were talking about his grandmother's belief in the pixies and the fairies. And it was an old time belief. It wasn't like a, it was, this was a long time ago. And she saw them as they were seen, which was very much as we see the visitors now, the little gray people. Uh, and when he was taken as a little boy, he asked her what to think of it. And she said, oh, it's, it's them and they'll always bring you back. Don't worry about it. And so let's do this. Let's, let me ask you now to describe for us the experiences that you were having that you took to her with that question. Yeah. So from when I was about five, certainly six or seven, I had um, um, a lot of experiences at night, which basically involved feeling paralyzed and having something in, um, something close to me and being unable to move. And um, they sometimes talk to you about, could, could you not normally remember the dialogue and th it was it was um they manipulated me and lay me on my back and i i was felt a bit dizzy sometimes because they that we obviously went through um uh, when when they moved me I, I i thought they were probably moving me and i had no control over anything I, it's very I, I didn't have a lot of framework to understand this and then it was gone and I, I sort of woke up and it, everything was normal again. And the, the morning I remembered the, this experience, it was, it was like being transported and transfixed and being controlled by somebody else. And I, it these experiences happened about every few weeks, uh, certainly from age seven. And I think prior to that as well, because I, I, I remember we, we'd, move around the country a little bit. So I remember the different bedrooms I had and experiences in the different places. And um, I, for a while, when I was about nine or 10, I had a, a terror of um, being in the dark. So we had to leave the hall light on and um, my parents consented to do that and it didn't really help because I, 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 I had a phobia about little snakes in the bed grabbing hold of my ankles and, and wrists, but really my feet most of all. And I think this was probably a subliminal memory of the fingers of the little greys, which I, I interpreted as little snakes because they're, they're quite thin. And I was scared of snakes in the bed and all sorts of stuff. And um, I didn't really sleep very well for a long time until um, but it, it receded, this receded. So the, that's the framework of the, the, the basic um, uh, background to my asking this uh, abductor why they were doing this to me, because I had a feeling that not maybe not everybody went through this. And uh, he replied, it was because of your mother, your grandmother, and your great-grandmother. 
and uh, he had his back to me at the time i do remember that and uh, and he says oh it's because of your mother your, your grandmother your great excuse me your great grandmother and um i asked my grandmother about this as, as i mentioned before i asked my grandmother about this um, in 1967, it's uh, about a year after this happened, or a few months after this happened, and she died in 1968. So we only had one conversation about it, and I never really approached my mother about this issue, this specific issue. Um, but that's another story. Oh, I've lost your sound. I've lost your sound somehow. Okay, that was my fault for once. For once. I'm so glad. <coughs> I've got a cough and I put on my cough button and forgot to take it off. So let's let's keep going though. We're not we're gonna leave this in. This is just there's no reason to take this out. So this was when you were a little child, and the symptom it, that you described to me would have been a doctor would have put down to hypnagogia, in other words, a sleep paralysis event. But something else was going on, and tell us when you began to realize that there was somebody there. When, when there was somebody with you, in other words, when you realized there were people, beings involved, and you began to see them. Now I can't hear you. Oh, phooey. Willie, can, can you hear me? Yeah, I can't hear you. I'm sorry, I, I turned the mic off. It's my, 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 I've got what a cough button. What are we doing? Here. We're both turning our mics <laughs> off without realizing it. How strange. Uh, the greys are funny jokers. They're here, all right. Indeed. Convincing us to do this, make fools of yeah. ourselves. It's it's very difficult to to answer your question um, with any detail. This is a long time ago because I'm I'm in my sixties now, and this is we're, we're talking about what happened when I was a child, below ten years old. But there were certain um, certain things really stand out and all stood out from that time. I had an absolutely terror, uh, absolute terror of medical procedures and particularly of infect of injections because. This was when um, diseases like whooping cough and measles and all those kind of childhood illnesses were rampant in the population. And some of the vaccinations and polio was, was, uh, had been a thing. Another One kid in my class had had polio and had uh, calipers fitted to his legs as a consequence. So we had a lot of inoculations at that time because they, they, that was the start of the... Um, you know, medicine has advanced at such a stage that, that these vaccinations have become effective and approved. And I, so I had to have a lot of childhood inoculations because smallpox was still a thing in the world, although it didn't exist in Europe, but it was still a thing in the world until 1978, I think. Um, so I had to have a lot of injections and I was absolute terror of, uh, of being injected and um, subject to medical procedures. I, I unreasonably so i mean most kids didn't have that reaction they just looked the other way and uh, you know yeah i understand so that was yeah. an indication that you were under <laughs> under some unusual stress that had been involving yes. uh, involving uh, penetrations into your body that you couldn't control it certainly looks like it yeah 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 i was um i grew up at the same time and um 
lived through the polio epidemics in, the, in, in which were terrible in South Texas. My parents used to pack myself and my sister off to the country uh, when polio hit San Antonio, but she got it anyway, fortunately not badly. But we had friends who died of polio, quite a few. So mm. when I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer basically for that reason, because when that polio vaccine came out, my summers were suddenly free and fun again. And mm. uh, it was a huge thing in our lives. Yeah. And, you know, I've always been co comfortable with vaccines ever since. So, but I mean, as we grew up later, <laughs> they didn't have that experience. So, they're, you know, they're less comfortable with vaccines. But, but as, a as a child, um, these inoculations were just um, becoming available and medically approved. And yeah, exactly the same here. So we all had them, you know, and I had actually had measles and rubella and all, all those diseases as a child uh, and chicken pox and everything, um, because those the, the, uh, inoculations against those things were, didn't exist at the time. But we had smallpox vaccinations, polio vaccinations and, and a number of other things, you know, scarlet fever and so forth. And I was absolutely terrified every time I had to go and have one, you know. And uh, oh, it, was well, I, it was unusual, you know, uh, at the time. I was told it was relatively, I wasn't a very well-behaved boy, you know, to yeah. make such a fuss about it. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a bad boy. I was very mischievous, uh, but I was very well-behaved in the doctor's office. So that's the difference there. In any case, sort of comparing notes, when did you... When did you become conscious of the fact that the greys were the greys? And we're going to go a little bit farther forward in your life at this point. Yeah, I think um, there was, there's two things really. The first thing is I read Communion in 1987. You probably uh -oh. remember, <laughs> you probably remember the launch of the book was a really big thing. I mean, you, you had a very effective publishing company and um, yes. you turned up on TV on uh on the, the primetime chat show circuits in England and in Ireland and, and the, these places. I and, and your book, um, the cover art by, by is it Tess, uh, Seth, Ted Jacobs? Ted, Seth, Ted Jacobs. Seth Jacobs, yes. Yeah. Um, There's something about that, that, that visceral image that went in, right into the heart of Seth. That's, that's there the one. There she is. Yeah. And, it's a she, yeah? Well, that's what I call her. I don't know if they even have sex. sex. I don't, yeah, that's another subject. I think they seem to have gender, but they don't have any sex organs or secondary sexual characteristics or reproductive abilities. Well, I met one that surely did. Really? Oh, God, yes. A gray alien? Apparently. Well, yeah, I never, I never did, so... But they, they, they do... Um, they, they, you can differentiate them apart when, you, when they speak to you. So, and nearly all abductees say this. Uh, the, those who recover some memories, they say the, the large, the taller kind in particular, definitely a male or female. So, um, but that that image, when he, the communion was published in the UK, and it turned up in all the bookshops in in a big, full window display all over the place. And you, everybody was talking, either reading it or talking about it. I don't know what your sales in the UK were uh, when the book was launched, but I, virtually everybody I knew seemed to be reading it. And that 
um, image was something was so powerful and so disturbing. It had it, it was it was disturbing in a way that only something very close to reality can be. Especially Rather if you've got it buried under your yeah in your subconscious. Yes, exactly. Um, if you if you um, monsters that are made up for horror films and sci-fi sci-fi films don't, work. don't have the visceral power of this because this is a real well this was this was this image was first contact it was the first contact between human beings and these other beings mm -hmm. and the image was intended and i certainly didn't know this at the time to wake people up to their own memories and to realize that this had happened to me that it wasn't a dream and I guess that's... It did. It's, ama it's an amazing piece of work. I mean, the yeah. first one, I, th I think, in the public domain anywhere. And it was such a big deal, uh, Communion. So I came across Communion um, in 1987 at the time or shortly after publication. And I saw you on the chat show circuits uh, in the UK. Um, we had very little to do with, um, you know... Uh, popular culture in the United States, even though we've got a lot of uh, TV shows and so forth. But this was so strong. And I, I, I just knew, part of me just knew that this was a real thing. This was really happening to people. And it, 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 it was partly it was it's you were so convincing when you talked about it. You because really it happened convincing. to me. And I, you know, I'm you not really a liar. Convincing. Absolutely. I um, it was extremely courageous to do that, Willie, because I think you laid yourself open to a lot of uh, debunkers and uh, cynics and so forth. And oh, it was you horrible. Just, it just ran off, you know, it just, you just slogged through it and held your ground. And it was very impressive. Well, and thank you. That, I did hold my ground. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good debater. I debated in high school and college very successfully. And it stood me well it. when I was getting I to these. Getting having these people thrown at me who were um, generally really unable to make or sustain the case they were trying to make. Mm. In 2007, which was um, two, 20 years after your book was published, I'd seen a, a few um, things about alien abduction on the discovery channel late at night and so forth on, on cable tv and uh, i'd come across odd things about it but i i never really took a, a deep interest in it although although i did see something on tv about bodily scarring and although i wasn't aware that i had any bodily scarring at the t at that time i what saw the photographs and the images of people um who'd had uh, scoop mark scars and cuts on, on, on their skin, uh, ab alleged abductees. And I just knew that this was a thing. And I was really relieved that it was nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted, didn't want it to be anything to do with me. Um, but then in 2007, I was on a business trip to Sardinia to visit a, 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 a manufacturer of medical devices um, in uh, uh, Iglesias, which is a town in the south of Sardinia. And we drove up, uh, my, I took my girlfriend with me for the third trip. We drove up to Bosa on the northwest coast of uh, Sardinia. And we got there at midnight 
and um, something happened overnight. I, I woke up at 7.30 in the morning. We'd agreed to wake up at 7 in order to go and have breakfast and take my colleague, the third member of the party, who had a flight back to Amsterdam because he was, he was a Dutch guy who lived in, in Holland and he was a business partner of mine. And um, we'd agreed to get up at 7 and just meet downstairs and have a bite to eat and drive into the airport. Half past seven, I woke up um, with my the bedclothes underneath me. So I was lying on top of the bedclothes and I was sitting semi-upright and the lady I was with was fast asleep on her side, underneath the bedclothes beside me. And um, in the room were two gray aliens in the flesh in the room and, and you between, were wide awake at this point. i was wide awake and the, between them both was my father now a lot of people uh, um uh talk about the, the fact that abductees sometimes see their dead relatives during abductions yes. i personally think that it's likely that uh, the abductors can create these images and put them in your mind. And it's absolutely viscerally, viscerally real. I mean, this was my father standing between these two gray aliens, but he, he, he died three years earlier. And he, he was smiling and in full Technicolor. And, and he just said, it's time to go, Steve, which is what Later, I discover the aliens always say to you, just as they're, you know, saying goodbye to you, it's time to go. And so they just faded out and disappeared. One of these aliens had um, something in its right hand, and it looked like a very elongated letter H thing about a meter long, which is almost as, as long as he was. And uh, the other one didn't seem to have anything in its hands. And... Um, my dad was between them. Now, I think that the, what my father, the image of my father was, was a grey alien projecting that in front of him and making me see my father, which was a, uh, for some reason they do this sometimes, to reassure or um, uh, reassure abductees or put them at their ease or, or whatever. And maybe, maybe they didn't mean me to wake up quite so early, quite so quickly. I don't, I don't really know how this works. But they were gone. And I put this down to um, an, a, a, an encounter with my dad in the afterlife for the next year or so. And it always bothered me what those weird creatures were. They looked like that, those creatures on the, on the cover of that Whitley Strieber book. <laughs> and... and <laughs> And, and the, you know, and and what were they very... doing? What were they doing? If if my dad was in heaven or wherever, you know, in, on the other side, the other the other world, what were they doing there? Were these creatures also there? I couldn't make any sense of it. And I came to realize eventually, after a year or two, that the grey aliens were the real thing, and the image of my father was created by them to and put it put in my mind. So that's the first time. The first time I, I saw the the Greys in full consciousness and had an absolutely full memory of it. 
And, and then you had to go down and be with your friends, your friends. Yeah. What we'll do you talk say? about that in just a moment. <laughs> we'll, be right, we'll be right back with Steve Aspen, his new book, Out of Time. Mm. We're talking to Steve Aspen, his new book, Out of Time, The Intergenerational Abduction Program Explored. And Steve, let's talk a little bit about physical evidence at this point. Uh, and what physical evidence are you aware of existing? Well, you know, we both know about the implants. I wear one. I wear one in my ear. Uh, so they're, they're there, but generally just completely discounted, if not derided, by general society. But what are the important uh, physical pieces of physical evidence you can point to? It was important to me writing the, this book that um, I bring enough hard scientific medical and scientific evidence to the um, to the table to place in front of people who were curious, maybe a little bit curious about the abduction issue, but had never really got any exposure to it uh, apart from a few, you know, schlock uh, late night programs on television and they'd never read anything about it so um searching searching for that readership i the curious maybe semi-serious maybe scientifically educated readership i wanted to place as much uh forensic and scientific evidence on the table as possible and i i've got um basically four or five areas that I go into in in uh, chapter four of the book which is 20 odd pages and most of the appendices of the book are taken up with these <clears throat> there's um first of all there um are scars uh, on the body and um <clears throat> one of the th one of the, the things that happens to abductees is they they find little scoop marks like little ice cream tiny little ice cream cones um, that have scooped out a bit of flesh on 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 the soft tissue usually on the back of the shoulders or on the back of the thighs or some place that the abductee is not going to see them readily because you don't really look on the back of your shoulders that much um and sometimes long straight scars up to 12 inches in length usually not that that long but some of them are are that long and I've, I've seen these on, on people as well. Um, the, 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 there's a story about how I eventually met with Bud Hopkins, who I actually wanted to meet from 2007. You'd obviously met him 20 odd years earlier um, when you went to him to uh, talk about your, you know, your, your, your experiences in, in the early 80s um or the mid 80s um i tried to reach bud through email and messaging and, and various channels but i he never responded because he was quite sick in uh 2007 and 2008 with uh two different types of cancer and i'd I tried to link up with him a couple of times and i'd even gone to a mufon conference in atlantic city in the United States, flew over to America just to go to that, just for just because he was on the on the bill as a speaker. I hope to talk to him, but unfortunately, he didn't go because of illness. Uh, but I did meet Peter Robbins at that conference, and we exchanged contact details and went out to 
dinner a couple of times. And when in August 2008, my wife, who's she's now my wife, she wasn't my wife then. We weren't, we weren't married, but we, we'd been together for a year or so. Um, I got out of the shower one day and she she's ex, she screeched and, and exclaimed and said, Steve, that thing in the back of your shoulder, it's one of those scoop marks. I have I've seen those photographs of those in books about alien abductions. And uh, you've got one. And she photographed them. And we sent the photographs to a couple of people she knew in the United States, people like Stephen Bassett and, and so forth. And one of the people we sent them to was Peter Robbins. Peter had, all, had worked with Bud Hopkins in the Intruders Foundation for many, many years, and he knew him quite well. And um, he showed these scoop mark, uh, photographs of my scoop mark scars to Bud Hopkins. And Bud had, was at the time um, the subject of a, of, a, of, of a documentary film being made by Breakthrough Films, um, which was also based in Lower Manhattan. Uh, on the Lower West Side. And they were looking for some fresh scoop mark scars that had never been in the public domain before that they could finance um, and film being biopsied and being analyzed and that they, they could film the dermatolo uh, dermatological uh, a lab uh, talking about it on camera. So Bud Hopkins, uh, out of the blue in September 2008, he phoned me up one evening when I was at home in, in my Hertfordshire home for home. And um, within three months, we'd gone to the United States and met up with him. So we, we arrived at JFK Airport to, to be greeted by um, a film crew and sound crew. And and, and we were recorded, uh, you know, greeting everybody and getting into the taxi and so forth. And, and they filmed... Um, I was interviewed by uh, Ricky Stern, who is one of the co-directors co of Breakthrough Films, and we spent a week uh, staying in Bud's apartment. And on uh, the 11th of December, I was taken in a taxi to uh, a dermatological clinic on the Upper West Side with a biopsy, this scoop mark scar. And um, they got the lab report back after a few days, and the verdict what it was, it was a dermatofibrona which is something that you get from a really large aggressive insect bite or that, that permanently, excuse me, permanently damages the skin and it makes a permanent scar. The dermatologist said that he'd never seen one this big ever. And he'd never seen a patient who didn't know how he got it, who didn't remember being bitten by anything. And it was, but it has a medical diagnosis and I, put photographs of this scar in the book, in, the pen, um, in one of these appendices. And um, the lab report is append in Appendix A. So that's was, a, it's a hard piece of evidence, which a lot of abductees find these things, or they're found, they're discovered on, on, on a lot of alien abductees. So they're definitely a thing. And um, also, um, there's a, there's a whole story of the hair. I don't know whether we, we have time to go into that. Do we? Um, we 
I was, um, I had an abduction in 2015 in uh, late in the evening uh, in downstairs in my living room in the lounge and um, where two entities entered through the French windows, the glass doors. And uh, the next, I, I kind of very, uh, I, I was knocked out instantly. And I woke up about half past one in the morning feeling very irritable and strange and went to bed because my wife was already in bed. She's slept a bit earlier than I did. I did. And um, uh, the next day she found a hair uh, this long. I'm a, is this in camera? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. About 10, about 10, 11 inches long on the, the carpet, uh, on the rug under the dining table. And she found a hair in on the patio outside the back door, which is amazing that she found it because it's it's something I probably wouldn't have seen. She just had a had an, an intuition with, as to where to look. And these two hairs were very light colored blonde or colorless and she was a she's a red-haired irish woman and i've uh, obviously got white hair now but you know 15 years ago not so much and um oh, sorry it was it, seven years ago and my hair has always been quite short for certainly for the last seven years so we'd had no visitors for a week or two to the house uh we both worked in the same business my uh, business i started um in 1999 and um we'd had no visitors at the house so these hairs were a bit of a mystery and because they coincided with this experience which i relate in the book um in chapter four we put them in a sealed bag like a freezer little freezer bag and she hid them somewhere where i wouldn't know where they were and um Why did you do that i'm curious yeah she thinks that these entities can you can read your mind and find out find out about these things and find out that he make you have throw it. things out yeah that's happened to me yes. so i think it is true yes. yeah she did she said if i hide them somewhere and they, yeah, i never tell you where they are they won't find them and they never they never did um it was a few months after this that we finally tracked down a forensic lab in um in illinois called is it um microtrace llc microtrace analyzed these two hairs and they, they analyze another hair from a different abductee uh in california actually she lives in california and the the, the this forensic analysis is also in the book in all its detail and long and short of it is all these hairs that were recovered from abduction events are from wigs. They're from manufactured wigs. The two hairs that came from my house in England were natural human hairs, but they were treated and dyed in a way um, that wig hair is dyed. And the one, the hair from the abductee in California was a polypropylene hair from an inexpensive costume wig. So whoever they came from uh, was wearing a wig in each case. And I give uh, the, the full breakdown of the, of the analysis of these hairs is in uh, Appendix C. 
the most uh, remarkable thing is the implants. You mentioned you have an implant on one ear. Yeah, here. Yeah, I use yeah. the implant. My implant is a <clears throat> become an essential tool in my work. Okay. So, but my listeners already know about my implant, so we're not going to talk about my implant. Let's go on <laughs> to see what you say. Well, um, they, um, I actually coughed one out uh, in last twelve months ago, and I'm pretty sure it was it was right up here in the um, um, the cribiform the cribiform place, which which is which is part of the brain where the olfactory nerve goes into the into the brain from the nose and that i think it was there because i felt this thing loose at the top of my uh, my nose and i i i'd been sneezing quite a bit because i had a fairly heavy cold and i just snorted something down and just like, like you know if you have a respiratory infection you can do that sometimes within about a minute i just went <coughs> very gentle cough and it cough this thing out into the wash basin and it was a blood clot with this little uh thing in the middle like like a little um uh grain of wheat or something in the middle really hard little thing and i had, I had this obsessive desire to get rid of it maybe because i, ra I rationalized it that if my wife sees i'm coughing up blood she'll worry you know she'll panic she'll have me down the emergency department and I didn't think it was probably anything to be too concerned about when it just happened once because it never happened previously. So I washed it down the wash basin and we have a septic tank here in the garden. So that's where it ended up. Um, and it only occurred to me the next day or the day after that, that it might have been an implant because it was surrounded by a blood clot and it was it came from up here. And I felt completely different after it was gone for some reason. I really felt a lot more energetic and and a lot more relaxed about a lot of things. And I wrote a, a message to Robert Hastings and Bob Jacobs, the guys. Uh, you know that uh, you, your um, your audience will will know who these guys are. Oh right? yeah, I think um, uh, uh, Bob has been on the show, as I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's had some amazing experiences. Yeah, okay. or he will yeah. be on. I think uh, Jeremy Bainey may, may be interviewing Bob shortly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I wrote a message to, to them explaining what had happened, um, that I thought it was an implant, and we I actually washed it down the wash basin. It's a, it's a, it's a damn shame, you know, because I, we couldn't analyze it anymore. But I, I do um, put a long... 40-page analysis of, of, a, of a, an implant uh, in one of the appendices. And uh, have you ever interviewed Steve Colburn or Stephen, Steve Colburn? No? Yeah, I know Steve. You do? Um, He's been on he, the show. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So you know him well. And you, your, um, your audience may know him too. And he, he gave a very detailed, sophisticated materials analysis of one of these implants that had been removed by Roger Lear and um, Dr. Mastriano uh, from, a, from a patient that, that they were dealing with. And um, this implant is also uh, discussed in the book. In, in, uh, and the, you know, they're amazing. I, have you ever done a, um, a program on implants? Just on implants? No, I haven't. Yeah. I, I did have Roger on the show many times. and Fantastic. I so, worked with 
uh, William Mallow at Southwest Research to study quite a few implants. Oh, well, you, so you, you've got more exposure to the, the, the thing than I have. Yeah, the thing that's it. so frustrating about it is there can, it can never rise to a proper level of finish in the science, scientific community mm. because it is, there is such a difficulty. They have such a difficulty emotionally accepting this idea that, that somebody who is more knowledgeable than them might be here and might not be addressing them. Interesting, and it's, it's interesting perspective. Yeah. Very difficult for them. Yeah. I, I know many people in the sciences quite well who are, some of them even are very clandestine about their abduction experiences, but they just can't handle it. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame them. I mean, this is understanding the nature of reality is their bread and butter. And here comes somebody who apparently has a much larger scale understanding and can implement it in all kinds of bizarre technological and super technological ways. And they won't talk to them. Yeah. And of course, they're reticent and, and, and unwilling. Yeah. Interesting that um, these this implant um, and a number of others that, that Roger looked at and had, had um, analyzed, they are basically they have shells of uh, con composed of composed of three biological materials, um, hemocyderin, uh, protein coagulum and keratin. Keratin is um, the substance, the essential substance of hair and nails as you know and um it only you only ever find keratin really close to the sink skin right yeah and uh protein coagulum uh is it, it assists in tissue respiration and uh hemociderin is uh an agent in the blood that uh works with the body's throm thrombocytes to induce clotting and the these three materials are woven together in the shells of these uh, um little implants and devices and i suspect but cannot prove that they are taken from the individual abductee or are engineered from the the uh, genetic yes. code of the well they, they have to be abductee. because otherwise they would be rejected by the body yeah. there's no the, the scoop yeah. mark is taking the, that material then yeah. they then they enclose the implant in it and put it in elsewhere that's how yeah. it works Fan fantastic they they they're um they're um they're completely biocompatible bio with the body and there there's no inflammatory response from the body to these implants that's, and um, that, and that's the reason yes and absolutely yeah um the, uh, and, we have to we have to take a brief brief break mm -hmm. uh, because it's come to the end of the free part of the show uh and um so my free listeners i wish you all the best and hope you do subscribe eventually uh so and i'd like to thank you as always for being with us well for our subscribers we'll go right on we're talking to steve aspen about his book out of time we've been talking about implants many of you have implants in you uh there's been quite a struggle over the years is trying to get them analyzed i tried and i succeeded very well at southwest research but 
the director would not let us put a single thing on letterhead. I have all of the research, but it is there is no indication of where it came from. And that pretty much makes it worthless. And the resistance in the scientific community, which we were talking about earlier, is profound. It is not rational. It is emotional. And I'll give you an example of exactly why I know that to be the case. Thousands upon thousands of people have reported this experience. From a scientific or a medical standpoint, it could be thought of as some kind of unknown hallucination. Now, why, and there's no question, it could be thought of at least as that. That's not what it is, but that is a one conclusion that could be evidentiary from the standpoint of medical pathology. Why has not the Centers for Disease Control in the United States ever referred to it in any way at all? Never. They, this they don't touch. If you look at their records, you will find they get into every conceivable disease or disability that is reported in the United States, but not this. This is left alone. And the reason is somebody is telling them to, or it is just a psychological thing, mm. but it shouldn't be left alone. They should be doing this research themselves. Mm. They should be taking the implants out and analyzing them. The scientific community itself and the medical community should be doing this. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be up to a podiatrist to take these out. It should be, it should be a medical a, a specialist in, uh, in this sort of thing. And there are specialists who do specialize in objects that are implanted in the body, like bullets and so forth. And they know a great deal about how all of this works. None of them will touch it. Mm -hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it is fascinating. Why do you think it is? Are they being told not to? Or are they just, is it, like I said earlier, <clears throat> emotional? I think that this is something that you've given a great deal more thought to than I have. I, I've, obviously, I've thought about it. But I, um, I think you've been immersed in this, uh, in this world for a long time. And yeah. you, you have... You know, you, you, you. I mean, California is probably. You know, you you're going to have the best forensic um, scientific uh, brains in the world working there. Yeah, but they can't. You can't. I know. I know some of them. I know some that mm -hmm. really do work on this, not, not on 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 the close encounter. I mean, on the uh, UFO end of it, and on close encounters. But I can't get them to do anything about this. They always tell me it's too expensive. Too expensive. Too expensive. <clears throat> Roger Lear didn't find it too expensive. He managed sure. to raise the money, and he didn't have a dime. Poor guy. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Let's get into what they're doing here, mm. because you know we're, we we we. <clears throat> I don't think there's too many people uh, listening to this show who are thinking. I wonder if it's all a fake, and they're fake. There's two if, guys. Just before <clears throat> just before we leave implants, just can we mention yeah, one more sure, thing? The, the, inside the, these um, protein uh, coagulum and keratin and uh, hemocidin shells, 
uh, which which are full of uh, protein um, nerve propria receptors, which are uh, 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 hypersensitive little little tendrils to uh, pick up uh, radio waves and so forth. The 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 carbon nanotubes, the, the the core of these things, are made of extraterrestrial isotopes, like um, iron, as an example. Uh, on um, terrestrial iron that's found all over the world, you know, and, and mined and so forth, has <clears throat> a certain number of um, neutrons on the nucleus. And those pieces of iron that have recovered from, from um, iron-nickel meteorites that fell, fall onto the planet from time to time, they've got a completely different ratio of uh, isotopes to anything on Earth. These little implants the isotope the isotopic ratios of the metals in the implants are all non-terrestrial and that's not something you can just go and buy anywhere they're but just where, where is this information <clears throat> i'll tell you but let me just finish it's mm -hmm. not anywhere in the peer-reviewed literature yeah yeah it won't it will never get in there mm. we, we live in a dream world life is but a dream Row yeah. your boat gently down the stream, scientific <laughs> community and general population. This is real, and we're here, and we're doing it whether we want to or not. We are. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted your flow. Prior oh, that's me. okay. That's okay. Where were we? Uh, I was going to... What are they doing here? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, what are they doing here? What do you think they're doing here? I don't know what they're doing. Um, do you have ideas on this? Oh, sure I do. Mm. I have lots of ideas on it. I was hoping you would too. Um, <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> the, obviously they're running a m massive program on millions of people. I um, Yes. I speculate on the final chapters. I really go into this in in, in detail and bring as much uh, data to the table as as I can as I can. Um, but it, it, probably none of it will be new to you, Whitley. I, I I think they're running a program, an intergenerational program. With what intention? I I really don't know. There's definitely. Um, overwhelming evidence uh, from abductees reports over the, over time that they seem to be breeding a hybrid race uh, that is indistinguishable from humans on the outside but have as different abilities on the inside the mental abilities on the inside and, I think that's exactly the I think you hit the nail on the head yeah and you know that they are uh, they're being introduced you know, or infiltrated into humanity uh, very subtly in different ways. I mean, this and I wonder what the objective of this is. This sounds immensely conspiratorial and improbable, but the whole the whole abduction phenomenon is immensely improbable. Uh, but it's happening, and it's 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 its unlikeliness, its improbability that keeps people away from studying it seriously. But it's really happening. Well, I think that the abduction process is about removal of sexual material from men and women yeah. on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that 
when it becomes a spiritual journey, that's the decision of the individual, not necessarily the visitors. They mm. are not spiritual teachers. They, uh, they are, they are definitely not. Mm. But you can make this part of your spiritual journey if you wish, mm. as long as you don't, uh, don't decide that they are saints. That would be a grave mistake. Uh, you know, if you don't want to go insane, you have to integrate it into uh, your spiritual life somehow. Because How have um, you done that? Um, I just resigned myself to the fact that it's happening. And it was happening to my mother and my grandmother. And um, I just... It, 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 it kind of colors everything that I do and think about, but I, I try not to become obsessive with it. I try not to become, uh, to have any kind of monomania about it. I try and integrate it somehow. It's very difficult to do, but you, you eventually, you practice it and you, you struggle with it. You eventually do manage to, to live with this. I mean, I managed to build an international company, uh, designing, um, designing, a medium and high-tech medical devices, which I had manufactured and exported uh, all over the world. And, and my business was quite successful. I, I closed it, uh, well, I sold it, sold the business, sold the uh, shareholding uh, in uh, 2017. And uh, I've retired since then. But I managed to do that uh, alongside all this stuff happening to me. And it's very difficult to integrate it in, in, in your early and middle years, but eventually you manage to do two things at once. I, I, that's all I can say. I can't, I can't really describe how it's done. You just, you just, you tend to have to get deeper in yourself and you, you be as true as you can to your, you know, uh, have have solid. Um, moral values and so forth that you you don't broadcast to the world but you just hold them in yourself and some for some some way you can actually it, uh, integrate it and you, you admit it's happening to you but you don't allow it to govern you completely do you believe you have a soul yes i do what do you okay. think will happen to it after your body is finished with this life um it survives and then who knows? I, I know you've um, you've visited Stuart Alexander, who, yes. who lives who lives forty miles north of me here. I don't Have know. Have you ever Stuart. been to his seance? No, I, I don't know him. But Leslie has been talking about him for a long time, and he men yes. she mentioned him to me five, six, seven, eight years ago. And I know he just lives forty miles away, but He's I don't actually to know him. Leslie Keane, the New yes. York Times reporter. Yeah, I, I don't actually know him, but uh, you know, he's I, he's the real deal, isn't he, Stuart? Well, I was in his sounds. I saw it yeah. happen. So yes, he is. <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah. people blare on and on of oh well, it was this, it was that. He had a wire. No, no. I was there. And mm. Damn it. It makes me so angry to hear that droning dead voice going on and on about how it can't be real. They are afraid of their own souls. Mm. That's why they yeah. that's why they're like that. We live in a society that is running away from itself. It's mm. running away from its truth 
because there's something wrong with the way they live and they know it. When I was in Stuart's room, in his seance room, it was a small room with six or seven people in it. Uh, things happened that cannot happen. Things I saw things levitated and moved around the room and all kinds of different things happened. I saw Stuart and the person I came with experience having a, um, uh, a, a tie that had tied them to the chair and their arm went up right through the tie and the tie was left around the chair. This happened to someone who'd never been in a seance before. And she felt this, she experienced this. And I'm sorry, it wasn't a magic trick. Hmm. It wasn't. Not conjuring. And not hmm. a, not a, not hmm. a uh, normal uh, act of ledger domain. It was a hmm. magic trick on a higher level, let me put it that way because it dematerialized part of the arm and the person came up, arm came up through it and then there they were again. And, and she got to take, keep it, take it home as a, as a lucky charm. And she's a very lucky person now too. She has been very lucky lately. So it's the real deal. Mm. And the dead are still there. Mm. And now you said earlier when when the dead appear, your dead dad appeared that, the, that, mm. that this was something that was being done by the visitors. And I really wonder about that because I Come. know plenty of stories mm. where it can't not have been that. Well, yeah. Um, it, I, I don't have any hard and fast conviction about any of this. I just think this is more likely and that's less likely. And, uh, yeah. You know, well, that's all we can do. Yeah. Um, I have to say, where my book's concerned, I, I don't really go into the soul and spiritual areas that much because although I acknowledge their, their, their reality, um, and I, I discourse on, on the soul in very specific, uh, re very specific ways about very specific references uh, in the final chapters, I don't really... What I wanted to do with the book was take people who didn't understand anything about the, or very little about the intergenerational abduction program and how it works and guide them through the very uh, hard scientific forensic evidence for it and the um, corroborative testimony of so many people that, that, that dovetail in and so to build a case that they should take it seriously and see it as a real thing. And I, I think that going into the soul and the spirit uh, in this context is maybe a step too far. Maybe, maybe that'll be for another book, but I don't well, really. Yeah, it's especially because I, I think that what we bring to it is our own souls. I'm not even sure the greys have souls. In fact, may, yeah. maybe that's what the hybridization program is all about. Maybe they want souls and don't have maybe. them. What do you, <laughs> you have some very interesting material in here. Let me see. Uh, 
Yeah, okay, in uh, the day chapter, what then are the grays? I, I found mm -hmm. that a very interesting, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of your thoughts about that? Well, the um, abductees report encountering different kinds of beings during their abductions, that they encounter two types of gray aliens. They're essentially quite similar to look at, but one is quite short, maybe three foot tall, and the other type is maybe five foot or five foot six tall. Yeah, and they I know both. They have different uh, roles in the program. They do different things. The little greys um, take the abductees from their environment and escort them to the uh, place where the um, examinations and uh, and procedures are carried out, and escort the abductee around and do basically basic physiological examinations at the beginning of, this, of the whole uh, session. And the larger greys do the very complex uh, mind scan and neurological procedures and also the gynecological procedures and the, the tissue harvesting procedures. They're, they're, they're more sophisticated things. Uh, some abductees refer to the taller greys as the doctors. And in addition to the grey aliens, the abductees report see uh, very occasionally encountering reptilian-like creatures, uh, less so than they used to, but they, they, they still turn up. And they are always just assisting with the procedures or assisting with the abductions. So I've never actually come across the reptilian creatures at all myself. Also, abductees report very tall, very thin um, insect-like -like beings. Uh, they they describe them as looking like a praying mantis. They yes, have I've seen those too. Triangular heads with big eyes on the corners, and they they are usually reported to be in charge of all the other ones. That they they have a very powerful presence and completely mentally dominates what's going on around them. And they usually there's just one in in a situation. They don't have a whole crowd of them. Um, they I think they are probably the instigators of the program. They're probably the real aliens, and I think the, what the greys are is their manufactured genetic creations um, to carry out the program. All they ever seem to do is their jobs in the program, and it's likely that they were they were brought into being here or very close to uh, to Earth, you know, uh, in the local ecology. And I think they contain human ge genetic material, and because they don't look, they look, uh, they have some of these insect-like characteristics uh, in their physiology and their their mental attitude, uh, but they also have human-like, uh, uh, more human-like bodies than the insect ones do. So I think they're probably genetic creations, and I discourse on why. The taller ones are sometimes uh, what they're often described as being either masculine or feminine in gender, even though they never they have no sexual characteristics. Or you say you would you would dispute this from your experience, would you? That they have sexual characteristics, uh, the gray aliens in particular. Well, I I, I don't dispute anything I, because we're not in a position to argue yet about this. <laughs> we don't know enough. Uh, but I have had sexual contact with one of them, yes. Really? A, a gray alien? Yeah. I, well, I think so. Uh, it was mm. 
its face was blacked out. I couldn't see its face, uh, probably mm. because I, I had seen its face. If things wouldn't have worked. <laughs> but it was, you... it, was, it was appalling. It was in a, in a room full of people, and um, some of whom I recognized. Really? One in particular I recognized, and I know well. I've known him for many, many years. He has never acknowledged it, and I don't think he's aware that he was there. He may be, but I don't think so. Mm. That have is you, the weirdest, weirdest experience. Have you interviewed Terry Lovelace? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Terry's you, been on the show. You know his second book, um, the red one, you know, with the red cover. I can't remember the, the title of it, but it's uh, the, the, I think it's called The Reckoning or something like that. It's something he, like has, that yeah. he has about 30 or 40 or 50 cases uh, letters from people and uh, about their experiences, and some of them um, report sexual encounters with uh, with aliens. And uh, yeah, they're fairly common. So yeah. um, maybe you either got lucky or unlucky. <laughs> I don't know which. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky, I think. I don't. I just don't remember any. Any. I, I do well, remember. I, I have to say, it, it was a very difficult experience and that was incredibly mm. embarrassing to me and shocking because you know i'm a a very old-fashioned guy i was married and i and when i got married i, I married a woman not i'm not a fooler around her and so i felt compelled to confess this to Anne. i had to and she was just completely sanguine about it she said oh well you didn't do it they did it to you so it's mm -hmm. you you don't need to you have nothing to confess whitley mm -hmm. they you couldn't help it and that was true enough i couldn't help it but i was fully engaged in it let me put it that way i woke up during in the middle of it when i was already fully engaged in it and uh, th then i was in the guest room with this surrounded by all these people and this and a lot of them were looking very upset like looking away and looking like this was something that should never happen and uh, this entity that was on top of me was making love to me do you say you were in the guest room my guest room in my house yeah downstairs that's where you were yeah wow. because uh, upstairs Anne was upstairs and my little boy was sleeping next door to the guest room and then I, so mm. this was the only free bedroom Hmm. And they had taken me down there, and uh, but I I have lost semen in the first experience, and then I had that happen, hmm. and I am haunted by this sense hmm. of loss that there's someone out there, or maybe more than one someone, maybe maybe someone's hmm. who are my children. And I don't get to know mm. anything about them. Do you have that same problem? Yeah, I, I've had my first experience where that came home to me. It was in 1976, which was a, a long time ago, um, on a beach in in Hampshire. And um, are we getting an echo? No, we're not. not. Um, I had... An experience on a beach with four, with three other people, with the, the four of us, and um, 
when I came to, I was about 200 meters away from the, the other people. And they were sitting, three of them were sitting on the shingle some distance away. And I um, had this disc, white glowing disc above me on the beach. And uh, it, by the way, it was about one o'clock in the morning. It's really late at night. Um, so I had a very, very strong feeling that they were pleased with me about something. And I, I had a, I had the feeling it was to do with this, this progeny, this project, to uh, that I donated something or made a contribution to something which they were really pleased about the results of. That is maybe sounds quite insubstantial, but it was a very deep, powerful feeling which stayed with me for a long time, and I, I really could make make much sense of it because that was my. I've put it down as a UFO sighting, which it, it was on one level, but it also had this it, this element of telepathic communication and of them being very pleased with something that I'd help them do, help them to do. So that was that was the first time I I um I had that really really strong feeling, and it's almost almost a feeling of gratitude or appreciation which I rarely get from them, but on that occasion, it was quite strong. That's interesting. Why do you think it was? What, what do you think you had done that pleased them? I, I think it was, it was a sperm donation, I think. Simple as that, and they, they'd made something from it yeah, over time. I really wish I could be comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable. Um, I'm not comfortable with it either, but it's um, it's it, it's happening. This is it, it is happening, and it's what we have here. And it's also, I think, the reason that the U.S. and British governments, and it's happening, I think, mostly in these countries, and probably in Canada and Australia. Um, because uh, and why I don't know, I, I think it's also happening in other countries, but it's simply not being reported in the same way. But. Um, mm -hmm. I I think it's the reason that they that they're so secretive, because how can they possibly come to the public and say <laughs> unknown beings are taking your sexual material right out of your bodies and we can't stop them and we don't know why they're doing it. They, they will never say that because it's an absolute abrogation of the of the responsibility of government to protect the population. Who in the government do you think knows about this? Oh, I know a lot of them. Know a lot about mm -hmm. it. Elected yeah. Congress people in the U.S. Congress or no, the in state Congress governments. Is, the, there's the Congress is trying to find out about it, mm. and uh, I don't know anything classified. Or if I do, I don't would, ne would never say that, and I don't know it's classified because nobody's ever told me. Whitley, this I'm going to tell you is classified. No one's ever said that to me. Hmm. Uh, so I, ha I can't know. And nor have I asked anyone about their security clearances or their non-disclosure agreements. I never do that, ever. So, um, but I have had a lot of, over the years, a lot of contact with people on the inside. And many of them have tried in various ways to exploit me. Uh, many of them have been, become close friends and, and been 
I'm close friends with quite a few of them. But uh, I don't think one of them would disagree with my contention that this should be part of the public dialogue. And I don't think one of them would disagree with the reason I give for the fact that it's not. I think it's all comes down to the abductions and their inability to control them. Oh, yeah. This is what they don't want known. Mm. That's it. Yeah. So, there's, do you think? Uh, do you think uh, there's a, one individual or a group of individuals, or how? How do you think people decide that it can't be talked about, and who decides such things? It's uh, <clears throat> it's layered. The inner layer of it is very selective about who is and isn't involved. And they must be capable of keeping a secret. And then there's an, a middle layer of people who have <clears throat> um, got a lot of information and have had briefings, deep briefings about what is thought this is about. And then there's an outer layer where you begin to know the names of the people. And these are people who are like scientists who have been working on uh, gravity propulsion and so forth in a semi-clandestine way. We know all of their names. Uh, they're, they're all out there. But, they're, but those layers, the inner layer, no one, but no one knows who they are. And there are very few of them. And then the middle layer, more, more of them are known. And the outer layer, they're pretty much all known. Mm -hmm. uh, but the three layers also don't communicate. In other words, the inner layer doesn't communicate with any of the outer layers. And uh, they're funded by the DOD. But that funding isn't, is not going to be findable by Congress. It, it will not be. Congress has the right to know it. But they're still not going to find it. Because I think that inner layer is in direct, contextually direct relationship with the visitors. Really? Fact, I'm quite sure of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. And, and, and we have this situation where it appears to me that something is being done on a mass scale. Because, for example, to get a full picture of human genetics, you wouldn't need half a million or a million people or sure. more. You could get sure. far fewer people. 20 people would probably do it if you'd selected them correctly from around the world or 50 yeah. maybe. Yeah. But no, it's like this. They are building, I think they are building versions of people. They must be. Or they've got a seed bank and they expect us to go extinct and, and then they're going to plant this seed bank on another planet or something. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how, what anything else could be true. Yeah, there's there's a, a certain limited um, number of options of possibilities, and you've you've just just listed them really. I mean, what do you think about the hybrid program? Do you have any ideas about that? I've known some of them, and they're yeah. very disturbed. The ones I've known, I know the one that isn't. She's a sweetheart. But I know others that are dangerous and disturbed. Mm. 
really? dangerous, extremely dangerous. I just had a run in them with them while I was finishing my last, my new book, them so intense that I had to leave the country and hide. I had to go somewhere where they couldn't follow. And they have limited ability to do that because they're not, they're not part of the economic process and they, they, they tend to be to lack funds and lack the ability to, many of them can't talk. Uh, they can only use telepathy and that, you'd think, oh, that's quite a skill and it's great, but in a world where everybody else talks and most of them will not hear you telepathically, you're crippled. Yeah, I, I don't think tele telepathy works on a mobile a mobile cell phone. Um, you, you just can't make a reservation or call your bank or whatever. You know, what do you do? <laughs> you can't do anything. You can't buy an airplane ticket. You can't do anything. Yeah. So, but I reconciled with them, and I was careful to write the book in such a way that it didn't disturb them because they're very vulnerable people. They're vulnerable and they're scared. <laughs> Of being, they're scared of being discovered, and I don't know why they're even here. Why are mm. they? Who would do that to them? Maim them, yeah, and then and then put them out in in the in, in just leave them here. Do they themselves know or have any ideas about that? I, that I don't know. I don't know them well enough to know that. Mm. Uh, but the one that followed us, we had uh, one that showed up in the woods behind our house in upstate New York, and. I'm oh, yeah. fairly well convinced he was my son. Really? And um, he could really? not speak. He had a mental ability to enter your mind. And it was very disturbing because he was 11 or 12 years old and he kept going into my mind and finding, you know, my sex life. And because, of course, he was a boy, a little boy at that age is going to be very interested in those things. But that's not pleasant to have that. And uh, you know, when we moved, he, sh he soon moved with us to Texas. And the next thing I knew, he was living in the flat immediately behind us with these two men who, in my wife's opinion, in my opinion, were demons. demons. They were demons. They were terrible, terrible creatures. And eventually, uh, we complained to the management. We weren't the only ones. Other people did because the boy was cutting up around the place and he did things like climb a wall and then pull the spokes out of some people's bicycle tires on the on the second floor and in their deck and all kinds of odd things. And social services were called because it was like a feral child. And then the next thing we knew, I called the landlord and found that got the name of the condo owner who owned the condo they were in. And he said, there's nobody living in my condo. And I said, sir, there are three people living in your condo. So he had them evicted. And when they were evicted, they, the whole building, I mean, every the whole complex knew it was happening. It was no secret. And uh, they came around from uh, door to door trying to sell the guy's furniture. Really? Yeah. And they could talk, the two demonic ones, mm -hmm. but the boy never came from door to door. I saw him once or twice sitting out on the, on the porch in front of our, our condo, and I tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't, he couldn't. And um, it was just extremely horrible and sad, very sad.
Who would do this, that to somebody? This is something completely outside my experience. It is outside most experiences, believe mm -hmm. me. But mm -hmm. you know, I'm here doing this and I'm 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 in here and I can't get out. So but you know, you've had you've had a remarkable experience and you also have an absolutely superb ability to analyze these things. And um, you mentioned in the in here, here it is, um, the possibilities. The aliens are nearing the end of their designed biological lifespan and are wearing out. Or not all are being replaced as the program is entering its final stages. And that the primary function of these bioengineered servants is no longer needed in such numbers. The abduction programs were designed to run for a fixed period beyond before its objectives are realized. The fourth and fifth generation abduction population is now sufficiently modified for whatever comes next. Yeah. Okay. I'm asking you, what do you think comes next? $64,000 question. Um, I, I think you've done a lot more thinking about this than I have actually about what comes next. I'm, I just know that um, that there is a hybrid breeding program and it's very advanced. Many abductees have told me that uh, they only deal with these hybrids that, that what, you know, they usually refer to what the one, they usually refer to them as the human looking ones who can mix in society. That's yes. all they deal with now. That's all they deal with. And they don't see gray aliens anymore or very rarely. Well, I so, have one story in my book, uh, in them, by it just came in a few weeks ago, actually, mm. about a guy who he had a he moved he was a military guy and he moved into a a flat in uh, off base, and soon the girl, a very pretty girl who lived beneath him, began to hit on him, and and he thought, what what incredible luck. <laughs> you know, wow, I've got this is great. And so he got himself a girlfriend. And um, does they it made love. What? I, I asked, does it have a happy ending? Well, it's, it's for you to decide. Um, they, anyway, they made love one time. And then she became very cold. She didn't want him anymore. And he thought, well, maybe I'm not a good lover. And, um, but then she said that she invited him to dinner one night and he thought, oh my gosh, maybe this is either she's going to officially blow me off or maybe it's a reconciliation. Yeah. So he went down to dinner and he she said, I have something to show you. She sat him down and face to face, she slowly turned into a gray. Oh my God and then turned back into herself and said she could never see him again. And I told him, I think that was only about getting her pregnant and you did that. And then she went home. Yeah. Yeah, probably. What in the hell is going on here? Who could do that? Who could turn themselves like that? And people say the reptilians can turn themselves into human beings. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I always thought that was totally absurd, but yeah. <laughs> not when you get reasonable people 
describing it and experiencing it. Do they actually physically alter themselves uh, physiologically or do they just make themselves look like the other thing? Well, it happens both ways. Really? I had a friend who has passed on now. He was a very high-end massage therapist who used to work with doctors to reduce pain for people who were had bad, very weak hearts and stuff and couldn't handle painkillers and things like that. And um, he was working on a very fragile lady one time. And he looks up into the mirror in his massage room. <laughs> He's not himself. He's a gray alien. He's a gray alien himself. He is. Yeah. And he thinks, my God, if she sees this, it'll kill her instantly. And, of course, it would be the end of his business and career if, he, if it, you know, the one of the patients did die on him. Yeah. So he just continues quietly massaging her. She never opened her eyes. And he looked up again a few seconds later and he was normal. And he said, I concluded the session very quickly after that. But what the heck is that? I mean, I mean I'm talking it, about what, we're to what we've gotten to here is the fact that not only do we not only understand the grays, we don't understand us. Yeah. Who are we, my friend, Steve? Help us find out. You've got a lot of work ahead of you. It looks like it. It looks like yeah. it. Yeah. I, I hadn't actually planned on um, a literary career or even writing a second book, but you know, I've, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. George Knapp uh, suggested I write, a, I write a second book. I think you should um, because you're a very, very good writer. And there's mm. not that many really good writers in this field who can go down deep like you do. Mm. And mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm seconding George's suggestion. Go down deep and see where you end up. How many books, <laughs> have, you, how many books have you written and published, Whitley? 25? Oh, God, no. I'm many, many. 50? Maybe 50, 40, 50, something like that. God, you, you, you write all the time, do you, basically? I mean, several yeah, months of the I year. Do. Yeah. I write all the time. I'm driven. Mm. Well, this mm. last book, them, is so critically important. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I've, I've I've been reading the um, you know, the the, the stuff about it. Yeah, and it, it it might change things because you know the human species has got to come together. The visitors themselves have divided us. They put yeah. our government on one side of the fence and the people on the other. And yeah. They are very good at creating divisions like that. Do you think we they've have, done that? Then, of course, they have. They did it. They did it by, I, I line up everything in the book that they did to put our government in a position where they dared not speak about it. Right. We have to get beyond that. We have to be one side instead of two sides fighting each mm -hmm. other. Uh, because right now all we're doing is like the dog that gets kicked and bites the, bites the boot, tip of the boot, never n looking up at the man who's doing it and doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't attack the man. Well, we got to look up, mm -hmm. and that's what them is about. Well, anyway, out of time, Steve Aspen. We are out of time, Steve Aspen. <laughs> so we finished the show, and uh, this is really well worth your time, folks. So I don't want to go on my site and look and see how many people have bought it, and it's four. <laughs> Buy you, it. Um, there's a web page out of time book 
dot info. That's out of time book, one word, dot info. Oh, well, I'll put that up in the show for sure. Yeah, it's I got, wish uh, I mentioned it earlier. I, I couldn't find any, any, any such page on the internet. I'm sorry, Whitley. It didn't, oh, that's okay. Uh, we, it doesn't have, a, but doesn't it, have it, SEO. SEO? Uh, search engine search optimization. optimization. Um, my wife does the the um, website stuff. I think she's probably done that, but not uh, very level, very high proficiency. Um, okay, but out, 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 of time, time, out of time, out of out of time book dot info, and that web page will take uh, as direct links to the Amazon.com and Amazon.uk. Uh, okay, I'll make sure product, that, 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 that that's well publicized. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, Steve Aspen, thank you so much for being with us. It was a <laughs> fascinating you. journey. Great interview, Whitley. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'll see you yeah. next time, yeah? See you next time. Yes, sir. See you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.